0: My guest today is Shadi Hamid. Shadi is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a contributing writer at The Atlantic. He was named one of the world's top 50 thinkers in 2019 by Prospect Magazine. And he's the author of three books, Temptations of Power, Islamic Exceptionalism, and the subject of today's conversation, The Problem of Democracy. In this episode, we discuss the difference between liberal democracy and democracy full stop. We discuss Shadi's concept of democratic minimalism, which is the idea that we should promote democracy in the Middle East, even when it leads to illiberal outcomes. We discuss the state of public opinion in Arab countries. We talk about the difference between Islamist and secular parties. We talk about the Israel-Palestine conflict and how it might be affected by the prospect of more democracy in the Middle East. We discuss the lessons learned from the Arab Spring. We talk about the new popularity of isolationist foreign policy in America. We talk about so-called benign dictatorships and much more. So, without further ado, Shadi Hamid. All right, Shadi Hamid, thanks so much for coming on my show. Hi, Coleman, thanks for having me. So, we were just reminiscing about the time we met a couple years ago, where you were, we were at a heterodox academy event, and I think literally ten to fifteen people were standing in a circle around you, grilling you about, uh, you know, something to do with Islam and uh you know its role in terrorist violence and i like i like i just told you you were like bruce lee fighting off 15 people at once um it was really uh it stuck out in my memory as just a, a hilarious and interesting scene but it's good to see you again it's been a long time
1: yeah likewise and um thanks for bringing back that memory i hadn't thought about that in a long time but i think i still have a picture of like fifteen people surrounding me, and I'm just sort of like popping out in the middle, trying to like defend myself verbally. Um, the good old days, I guess, when people still cared a lot about uh, Islam and Muslims. We sort of, I think, we're not so front and center on the stage these
0: days, which is probably a good thing for the most part. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that was a few years ago. You you had terrorists in France, you know, killing crazy numbers of people. And it was just, it seemed like a nonstop, just a nonstop series of, of terrorist violence in Europe, especially occasionally in America, and then, and then certainly in the Middle East. And this sort of year after year, the same conversation about whether Islam, whether religious belief is to blame or whether terrorists were motivated by you know, economic grievances, by poverty, by political grievances, by US foreign policy blunders and and so forth and that was that's a conversation that has receded i think because you know either terrorist incidents have actually gone down in the west or at least they're perceived to have gone down is that would you agree with that analysis of why islam and islamism is not as much in the news these days
1: yeah i mean that's certainly part of it that terrorism is no longer the issue it was in the US I think also, it's hard to think a lot about whether Islam is compatible with democracy in the Middle East when we as Americans are struggling with our own democracy at home. There's this sense that we should be focusing inward. People are consumed by our own polarized political debates. I mean, there was a time when people were bored with American politics. So like under Barack Obama, I think people had a lot of room to think about the Middle East because first of all, we were under somewhat competent leadership, but also that um, our political debates just were not existential in the way that they are now. So you might recall the whole controversy around Obama's tan suit. Like that was actually a controversy that was you know, around for a few days and people are like, oh my God, that's how bored we were. We had to get worked up about Barack Obama's fashion sense. But then obviously with Donald Trump, it raised the stakes of American politics considerably. It just makes more Americans more focused on our own troubles. And I think also that with the rise of wokeness, particularly after the summer of 2020, there is a new public enemy, number one, for folks on the right. Um, if you're a Trump supporter, you're going to be more exercised about the threat of hyper wokeness or trans rights or whatever else it might be. And just Muslims don't seem as big of a deal Like in that context. There's also just not as um, that many of us in the U.S. compared to Europe. So there's also that that plays a role. Because obviously, if we look at countries like France and Austria and Germany, Islam and Muslims still are very much at the forefront of public debate. So it's not as if it's receded everywhere. I think it's receded primarily
0: in the US. I read an essay recently which argued that the big difference between conservatism, say 20, 30 years ago, and conservatism today is that they used to be focused more on external enemies, first the Soviet Union, and then Islamic terror. But recently, conservatives are more focused on the enemy within, the, the far left, and that the lion's share of rhetoric on the right is now devoted to domestic threats. Would you agree with that analysis? Yeah, I mean, it's 100% true. There,
1: there isn't an enemy quite at the stature of the Soviet Union. There was an effort to make Islam into an all-encompassing threat post-9-11, But that wasn't, it was effective maybe to some extent for a couple years. And maybe I should say, some people saw Islam as a threat, others saw Islamism as a threat, and people had different ways of describing it, radical Islamism, extremism, whatever it might be. Um, But then um, I think over time, that just, it wasn't enough to sustain interest and attention especially after there was exhaustion with the Middle East during the Arab Spring. I think the Arab Spring figures really prominently in here because I think that's what creates this sense that we've been so overly preoccupied with the Middle East. It just becomes easier to look inward. Um, and uh, But yeah, I think you're certainly right. The enemies today are the enemies within, but not just from the standpoint of the right, but from the standpoint of the left as well. Um, You know, the fact that I mean, not to you know, I, I have a lot of respect for Sam Harris, but I did disagree with him a little bit when he would when he would make comments like Trump is worse than bin Laden. But I think that captures a certain view that MAGA Republicans as exemplified by Trump and his like overarching badness in some ways people could see Trump as a bigger threat or someone who is more dishonorable, less moral and the argument if i recall from Sam Harris and some others was that you know at, you know at least at least Bin Laden had a code, which I suppose is maybe true in certain ways. But, but you know that I think that tells us something that the deplorables that we're concerned about, or the quote unquote bad people that we want to confront, tend to be in our own country, and they tend to be fellow American citizens. I mean, that's very concerning to me, and we can get into that later. Um, it's certainly not something I agree with at all. Um, but I think that's where we are as a country um we're focused on not opponents because we don't really see our opponents as just that anymore we see them as enemies to be defeated um and that's when things get very scary because how do you coexist or how do you live with people who you actually want to defeat
0: yeah so this is something i thought about a lot is like you have a lot of people on the left that value diversity and tolerance these are the watchwords of the day and and yet, many of them don't seem able to tolerate the diversity of cultural conservatives and evangelical Christians in their own country. So, like, this is a very culturally diverse country. You, I'm not of evangelical Christian culture. I'm from blue America, secular America, uh, racially diverse America. So, at some level, you know, when people make fun of rednecks, I see exactly why that's funny. And it's like, it's as foreign a culture to me as. As it is to to people that want to make fun of it. On the other hand, I think whatever you want to say about the virtues of tolerance in terms of seeing people from other parts of the world, other countries, other faiths, other cultures, and you know, working a little bit harder to tolerate, you know, harmless differences, right? Doing a little bit of the work of empathy to kind of theory of mind, jumping into their perspective and seeing How you may be able to coexist with someone that isn't from where you're from and doesn't worship the way you worship. I think you know it it would be worthwhile trying to extend that to people in our own country, and that that goes both ways. I mean, it goes for the right as well. But I want to get to the thesis of your book and uh, your background as well. Since you mentioned the Arab Spring, let's start there. I know that you you were in Cairo uh, during the the beginning of the Arab Spring. I'm curious. Uh, why were you there? And connect this to sort of a brief bio of how you came to be a person that writes and thinks about politics broadly and the Middle East in particular.
1: Yeah, sure. So yeah, I was in Tahrir Square the day that Mubarak fell, the longtime dictator. It happened on February 11th, 2011. So yeah, it's been about 11 years. And it was one of those beautiful once in a lifetime moments. I would imagine that most of your listeners and most Americans in general have not actually lived amidst a revolution. I mean, it's something that we can study and read about, but it's a different sort of feeling to actually be there. And I was very much affected by that. I did get caught up in the euphoria. You know, I'm i am I'm born and raised in the U.S., but um, I'm of Arab background. I'm Egyptian-American, and most of my relatives are still in Egypt and so there's also a personal element too that growing up and spending summers in Egypt and living in Egypt briefly I really I do recall like from an early age being um conscious of the fact that Egypt didn't have the same freedoms that the US did and I sensed a kind of quiet desperation sometimes from Egyptians this sense that they were resigned to their fate they were trapped in a system not of their own making and a system that they would never be asked to consent to. And I think that that was a big part of where my anti-authoritarian orientation came from. And I've always had a particular dislike of authoritarianism, but specifically authoritarian regimes, uh, which I guess is sort of like a self-evident thing. Although I do think there is a certain kind of weird American elite envy when it comes to Um, autocratic regimes getting things done or being more efficient or more effective and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, so I mean, I was someone who had a lot of hope and expectation, but I had spent my graduate years, my, my PhD was on the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and Jordan. So I was very focused on looking at religiously oriented parties, specifically here, Islamist parties and just to use a clear definition, Islamist parties are those that believe that Islam or Islamic law should play a central role in public life. And I was always fascinated by these parties. And ultimately, my my book, which which is called The Problem of Democracy, is a culmination of a lot of the thinking that started a very long time ago. And The Problem of Democracy, for me, to kind of summarize it succinctly, is what do we do when democracy produces bad outcomes? And the reason that I started asking that question was because of my time in the Middle East, because that was the question during the Arab Spring, but also before it. Um, Even during the Bush era, um, during the freedom agenda, so-called freedom agenda of 2004 and 2005, there was an opening in the Middle East but then Islamist parties, they didn't win outright, but they made impressive gains. In one place, they did win outright in Palestine in 2006, where Hamas uh, came to power. And that was, in some ways, the definitive end of the Bush administration's interest in promoting democracy in the Middle East, because it created a, a really fundamental dilemma that we like, we as Americans, we like democracy in theory, but we're not comfortable. With its outcomes and practice. And so I think a lot of my time in the Middle East has been oriented around this particular democratic dilemma. How do we come, how do we or how do they, to be more precise, come to terms with outcomes in the democratic process that they consider to be personally threatening? So if you're a secular person in Egypt, and the Muslim Brotherhood wins an election, how do you get your head around that? Because you don't want to see Egypt become more Islamic or Islamized, but then respecting democratic outcomes means that you respect the right of other Egyptians to go in a different direction.
0: Yeah. So this is the core thrust of your book. Um, I think a, a really important point to spell out right here is the difference between liberal democracy and democracy itself. What is the difference between these two notions and why do we in the West tend to conflate them?
1: Yeah. Well, so, you know, just first of all, I think when we as Americans, it's sort of in the air that we breathe that when someone says democracy, what they often mean is liberal democracy. There's a set of baked in assumptions that often go unstated, but they're there if you dig a little bit underneath the surface. So here I'm talking about, um, when we talk about liberalism, we're not talking about like owning the libs in the sense like um, the American sense of like left wingers or whatever. We're talking here about the classical liberal tradition, as many of your listeners will be aware. And the classical liberal tradition emphasizes a a different set of priorities and values than small d democracy and sometimes there is a real tension. So liberalism is about individual freedoms, personal autonomy, uh prioritizing the individual over the collective, the primacy of reason over revelation. It tends to imply a constrained role for religion in politics and public life. Not to say that religion can't play a role, but within certain boundaries. And then there's other things that kind of derive from that, like gender equality, minority rights, and so forth. So that's the classical liberal tradition. Small D democracy, um, if we just dial it down to basics, which I try to do in the book, and I propose, I propose what I call democratic minimalism. I'm trying to bring people back to what I what I consider to be the essence of democracy that's been obscured by this strong liberal influence that Democracy at the end of the day is about responsiveness to the electorate. It's about voters making a choice through regular elections. And then what results from that choice is alternation of power. So in this basic sense, democracy is a mechanism for alternating power through periodic elections. It's more about conflict management than it is about a particular conception of the good. So it's not an ideology, the way that liberalism can sometimes be seen as an ideological endpoint. And I think that even if we take this minimalistic approach to democracy, that's still a pretty beautiful idea. I don't think it's not as if I want to cut it down to size or make democracy into something, you know, lame and boring. If anything, I think the idea of alternation of power is a beautiful idea. And I would also say that at the heart of the democratic idea is the right to make the wrong choice and this to me is absolutely essential and it colors a lot of my thinking and writing around these issues but to go back to your question yes sometimes there is a tension between small d democracy and small l liberalism so then it's up to each and every one of us to ask ourselves a difficult set of questions which is what do we prioritize when these concepts don't go together They had gone together through much of the post-war era in the American experience. And that's why we didn't really think until more recently that these concepts could come into conflict because in our own American experience, they did seem to go together until they didn't. And I think Donald Trump's election also figures into this because this was the first time that we've had a president who fell distinctly outside the liberal tradition. I think it is fair to say that Donald Trump is not a liberal. He's actually not, it turns out, even a small-D Democrat, as we found out later, Um, but uh, certainly not a liberal or someone who wasn't really tied to, say, the Bill of Rights or the values enshrined in the U.S. Constitution. That's not something that really animated Donald Trump. So that's why... 2016 forced us as Americans to think of this tension as not something that happens over there in the Middle East. It's not a foreign problem that the you know, pesky Muslims and Arabs you know are, are struggling with. It came home, and it was something that we saw could be a problem in our own democracy.
0: So this is a quote from your book. As a set of ideological premises rather than a system of governing, liberalism requires liberals, and there simply aren't that many of them in the Middle East. So, so it seems like you're saying the basic problem is if most Arab countries, if any given Arab country really, were to become a democracy tomorrow, the party that would win is unlikely to be liberal and is fairly likely to be Islamist. And so that creates a problem, because on the one hand, you know, most Americans do abstractly want to promote democracy abroad. Uh, Even in the case of the war in Iraq, which is viewed with a lot of shame, certainly by the left and even by the right, it wasn't that promoting democracy in Iraq was the critique. Really, the critique was, oh, well, we don't really want to promote democracy. We're just saying that to get the oil, right? It was a critique of bad faith, essentially. But implicit in that is the argument, if we really were there to promote democracy sincerely, then that might be a good thing. So even I think the left in America would have would probably agree with that in the abstract. But then, you know, so do you think that Americans have had a self-absorbed or naive view of what the median Arab voter thinks about the world? Like have we do we just assume that Arabs are more secular than they are? Like what is your picture? How is our picture of the beliefs of your typical Arab distorted? Yeah, yeah.
1: So I think on a somewhat universal level, I think Americans, putting aside the Middle East for a moment, I think there's an an American assumption, which is a kind of optimistic assumption that people at their core, if given the choice, they will choose something moderate. They will choose something sensible, that good ideas rise to the top, that if people can choose, they'll they won't be anti-American or they won't be anti-Israel or anti-Semitic anymore. All these assumptions, I think, are are baked in not just about the Middle East, but more broadly. So I think there's also some confusion to the extent that Americans pay attention to like India. Far-right Hindu nationalism is also probably a little bit difficult for Americans to get their heads around, and a far-right Hindu nationalist party has been winning in consecutive elections you know, or even increasingly in Israel. Israel just voted in its most right-wing um, government in history. But also Italy, just, I mean, the list goes on. I mean, Italy uh, has a, a far-right prime minister for the first time in the post-war period, um, so on and so forth. So this kind of brings me back to this idea that the Middle East was almost in a way ahead of its time, because, you know, Arabs and Muslims in the Middle Eastern context seemed unreasonable and irrational from like an American secular standpoint, but then sort of everyone else followed suit afterwards. But, you know, in the case of the Middle East, I think there's a couple additional issues. One is that Islam is a fundamentally different kind of religion than Christianity is. So even if you know a bit more about Christianity It's still going to be hard to get your head around Sharia because there is no equivalent to Sharia in the Christian tradition. So Christianity doesn't really have an account of public law. If you read the Bible, there aren't many verses that talk about how to govern, in part because that's not what the early Christians were contending with. So naturally, the New Testament won't say much about it because it wasn't relevant to people at the time. Christians were a minority. They were not governing themselves until several several centuries into um, the Christian experience, where obviously in the case of Islam, the question of governance becomes uh, relevant almost right away because Prophet Muhammad wasn't just a dissident against a reigning state. He was also the head of a proto-state in Medina. So naturally the Quran has to say something about governance because that's what the early Muslims had to think through. They had to figure out how they would um, govern in accord with Islamic values and so, and so on. And actually, my, my my previous book was primarily about that argument. It was called Islamic Exceptionalism, where I argued, I suppose, somewhat controversially and provocatively, certainly that um, that Islam is exceptional in its resistance to secularism in its resistance to liberalism in some ways, that there is I think, a tension between Islam as it's traditionally been understood and interpreted and the classical liberal tradition um, that Islam does continue to play this outsized role in, in public life in these countries in the Middle East. So which goes back to what you were saying that if people do have the right to vote, they won't vote for an Islamist party each time, but even when they vote for for so-called secular parties, they still want Islam to play some role now Muslims disagree among themselves about what the appropriate role is and that's why we saw so much polarization in the Arab Spring period but if you pull you know Egyptians Jordanians Moroccans whatever it might be with very large majorities they will say that Islam should play some kind of role in public life it should not be privatized it should not be cordoned off and put in a little box. So that obviously has implications, because if that if that's what the median voter thinks, then you're not going to have successful secular parties that call for the privatization of faith. And even secular parties pretend to be more religious than they are in electoral contests because they know where the median voter stands. So I think those are some of the dynamics there. And uh, I think it just goes against this American teleological story that, you know, okay, first there's Reformation, then Enlightenment, then a process of secularization, that over time, Muslims will move away from these religious passions. Luckily, I think more and more Americans are moving away from this kind of modernization theory approach, but that was the dominant view. For a very long time, that this is the natural course that societies follow. And that's why people started to get like pissed off about the Middle East. Like, why is the Middle East the exception to this rule?
0: So, couldn't somebody reply that what's happening in Iran right now seems to support the modernization thesis, right? You have women refusing to wear the veil and mass protests, not just against the regime, but also against. The the notion of Islamist government uh, to some degree Why isn't that proof or at least some evidence in favor of the modernization theory?
1: Yeah, yeah, so I think that Iran is It's hard to generalize based on the Iranian case Because Iran is a Shia-majority country And there are only, um, what is it, three or four Shia-majority countries in the world Um, So the vast majority of Muslims are Sunni And there are aspects of the Shia tradition that can lend themselves to clerical rule. So when we talk about clerical rule, as we see in Iran today, and what Khomeini was able to devise, and even what he devised was somewhat innovative. I mean, Shias hadn't really proposed what he proposed in in centuries prior. But this kind of deference towards the clerics and having an official clergy Um, that is much more prevalent in the Shia tradition than the Sunni tradition. So to the extent that the problem is clerical despotism in the case of Iran, it's difficult to see how you would have quite the same sort of situation in Sunni majority countries for the most part. Um, So that's one. Um, But yeah, I mean, living under a brutal quote unquote Islamic regime is inevitably going to push people away. So there are situations and so if you're if you're a secularist and you want to see secularism spreading in the middle east in some ways you might almost hope that there's a kind of example of brutal theocratic rule so that people can define themselves in opposition to that we always come to know ourselves by our opposites so yeah i think there's that can happen I just think it's less likely to happen in Sunni-majority countries, and that's why it generally
0: hasn't happened in Sunni-majority countries, certainly not in the Arab world. So you make the argument that Islam has been uniquely resistant to secularization, but you also argue that Islam has already undergone a reformation. Can you square that circle for me? How can you? How do you argue both of those things?
1: Yeah, so... A Reformation isn't always something that leads to an enlightenment. So I think that in the kind of Western imagination, we were quite willing to conflate different things and put them as part of this package deal. But let's not forget that the Christian Reformation was quite violent and extreme in its own way and brought about a lot of, uh, let's say, unchecked religious passions. The fact that it led to a secular outcome was not predetermined. That's the way that it turned out, and it's a bigger conversation as to how how and why it turned out that way. But when we're talking about an approach to reform, which is obviously an important part of anything that we might call a reformation, I would say that it's Islamist movements in the Middle East in the 19th and early 20th century that actually presented themselves as reformers as people who are trying to revive Islam and to make it more relevant to the faithful. And this is why I always tell people, Islamism as an ideology is not a pre-modern ideology. It's not about copying and pasting the 7th century. That's, to me, a, a fundamental misunderstanding, because Islamism did not exist in the pre-modern period. Why? Because in the pre-modern period, Islam provided the overarching legal and moral architecture for societies. No one questioned that. There wasn't an alternative source of legitimacy that could have been considered. You didn't have secularists back then because secularism as an idea hadn't been introduced yet. But when secular secularism and then the classical liberal tradition are introduced in the 19th century and you have elites in the, in the Middle East who start to be exposed to these ideas, then we see a really a distinctly new kind of polarization. And for the first time, there are two systems that are competing with each other. One is based in religion, the other is based on these post-enlightenment ideas. And then Islamists come in and say, here's how Islam is the right answer to the question. Here is how we make Islam relevant to the nation state. This is how we modernize Islam by applying it. So even the phrase in Arabic, the implementation of Islamic law, that is a modern phrase because it presumes a Western understanding of law because in the pre-modern period, law was decentralized. There was a kind of built-in legal pluralism in the Islamic tradition but then with western influence you start to have this idea of the law being contained in statutes in a legal manual that laws are something that you read and apply i don't think we realize how first of all you know modern and also state centric that is and it's natural that we would think that way because the nation state is all we know and we think of law as something that only the nation state can really implement effectively. But basically, Islamists fall into some of this. And they, I think one of my criticisms of Islamist parties is is that they're too dependent on the idea of the nation state. And that's why they're so focused on gaining power through democratic elections, because if they have control of the nation state, then they think they can transform the culture. So the state is always a means to an end. And when the state is the prize, that obviously encourages polarization. It raises the existential stakes of politics because whoever wins the state wins the culture. I don't think that's always true, but that's how people see it. That the state is the way that you implement cultural change. If you want to Islamize society, you can only do it um, if you're in power in some sense and you have control of the government.
0: So as I understand it, your argument is that instead of being so focused on promoting liberal democracy in the Middle East, we should get rid of any, at least any short-term or really necessarily long-term, hope for liberal democracy and simply promote democracy itself, whatever the outcomes are for any given state. So one question I have about that is, Say we are successful promoting democracy as such in various Middle Eastern countries. Wouldn't you, would you agree that if and when Islamist parties come into power, that they will tend by their very nature to centralize power, to uh, suppress dissent and uh, opposition parties, to suppress free speech, to rig elections because of what their actual substantive commitments are theologically and culturally and and so forth so i mean it seems to me that this kind of approach is unlikely to result in uh democracies that last very long what would you say to that critique
1: yeah yeah that's i mean uh, you know one of the more common critiques to my argument so Sometimes this worst case scenario is described as one person, one vote, one time. The phrase was actually coined in regards to the prospect of Islamist parties coming to power through democracy only to immediately cancel democracy. And as I argue in the book, this one person, one vote, one time thing has never actually happened. There's maybe one or two borderline cases if you really want to stretch your concepts, but... You know, for something that people talk about a lot, there isn't actually a lot of empirical evidence or experience that would suggest that this would is Hamas particular-
0: count as that in Gaza. Uh, so no?
1: I don't, I, I don't count Hamas. Be- What's well, a little bit complicated would happen with Hamas, um, but there was basically a civil war between Hamas and the so the secular Palestinian party, and but. It, Hamas never canceled elections. If anything, I would say that one of the tragedies of the Palestinian case is that when Hamas won, its challengers were trying to push it out of power and undermine it. You know, and certainly the U.S., again, there were understandable reasons. Hamas, you know, was and still is a designated terrorist organization. So there are legal concerns in terms of how you deal with a party like that. But, um, you know, Hamas from day one was being basically pressured and with a goal of destabilizing the new Hamas-led government. Anyway, it's a bit of a long story, but I think it's it's a very particular case and one where bad, Hamas ended up doing some pretty bad things, but everyone was sort of implicated in different ways as part of a broader civil conflict between Palestinian factions. But yeah, I mean that's that's one case that people bring up, but that's even itself not a particularly persuasive one from my viewpoint. Turkey is another one, but Turkey is still has democratic competition. And but on the broader point, I think I would say that is our Islamist parties potentially anti-democratic because of their Islamism? Is that the causal factor? That we're looking at. What about Islamism itself would lead a particular party to be intolerant of even a minimalist conception of democracy? And this is where I think the record shows in the Middle East that the folks who have been most anti-democratic have tended to be secular and liberal parties and politicians. So I make that argument pretty explicitly And I think that I'm on strong ground there. For example, the people who supported the coup in Egypt in 2013 after the Muslim Brotherhood came to power, liberals were almost unanimously in support of the coup. They were not willing to respect the democratic outcome when when an Islamist party came to power. And we used to joke at the time where how many Egyptian liberals can you count on on your hand who opposed the coup? and it was a joke but it was also a little bit dark because usually i think we came up with two or three pro you know out of all all the visible prominent liberals so you know i think that or secular dictators so when we think about anti-islamist dictators who self-style themselves as progressive or liberal so
0: so it occurs to me i mean it occurs to me i could i could actually turn the question around though if in fact it's true that secular parties are less democratic by nature than Islamist parties, then couldn't you make the same argument about about if a secular party comes to power is the, the democracy is unlikely to remain for long to remain for long?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I think that in some sense secular parties, yeah, would struggle a little but secular parties wouldn't ha wouldn't want to end democracy necessarily if they came to power because they would like the fact that they won. The reason that secular parties have tended to be anti-democratic in practice is because they tend to lose. And when Islamist parties win, they don't like that, obviously. But they also feel that there's a built-in advantage to Islamist parties, because in religiously conservative societies, people tend to incline towards religious rhetoric and religious advocacy. So liberal parties sometimes feel that They're not going to be able to win fair and square. So when I would tell my liberal friends in Egypt, hey, guys, I know you hate the Muslim Brotherhood, and I get it. I wouldn't want to live under them either. But can't you just wait to the next election? There's no way the Brotherhood is going to be able to cancel elections or end democracy because the military is a kind of balancing force. Um, and there is a deep state, and actually the term deep state is imported from Egypt and Turkey, which is a whole other story from itself. So in some ways, we as Americans are taking concepts that were born in the Middle East and applying them to our own democracy. So in the lead up to the midterms, as a little aside, just a few weeks ago, um, we heard this term, one person, one vote, one time, applied to the Republican Party, which I thought was you know, somewhat intriguing and even humorous because that term, that phrase came about in reference to Islamist parties in the Middle East, as I mentioned. So, you know, I think that um, part of this is that if you're more likely to win in a democratic election, you're going to be more enthusiastic about democracy because Islamist parties over time have become more popular with the Islamic revival in the Middle East, over time they've become more pro-democracy because democracy tends to be good for them. But if we talk about say the 50s and 60s in a country like Jordan, the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan was actually not very pro-democracy because it was leftist parties that tended to do well in elections during the heyday of socialist nationalism. So I think some of this just comes down to basic self-interest and you know at some basic level there has to be a settlement between these different parties and factions and the code of conduct has to be very much around this basic issue if there is a democratic transition the one thing everyone has to agree on is respecting democratic outcomes even if they hate the outcomes now it's not easy to get there but without that's that is the basic minimal threshold and i think it was possible for that To emerge in the Middle East. It did emerge in Tunisia. It did emerge in Egypt if it wasn't for the military stepping in in 2013. And also, I put a lot of criticism on the Obama administration for empowering the Egyptian military to turn against the democratic process. So I don't think that the end of the Arab Spring was foreordained. I don't think Arabs are doomed to live under dictatorships. I think certain things happened and certain people took action at key moments, but there was an alternative counterfactual history, and I lament the fact that that counterfactual history was not the one that won out in the end. And I do put um, and I do think America, we as Americans, um you know, were morally complicit in the end of democracy in the Middle East, in part because we didn't like the idea that the Muslim Brotherhood was going to stay in power and I talk about how particular senior officials in the in the Obama administration particularly John Kerry Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel had a particular brief against Mohamed Morsi who was the president of the Muslim Brotherhood more broadly they didn't like Morsi the the brotherhood leader and they didn't like the brotherhood they didn't like Islamists and that colored their view of the military coup. They might've been like instinctually not very comfortable with the idea of a military coup, but they're like, well, the military coup will actually get rid of these problematic Islamists who are causing us trouble. Maybe it's not the end of the world. Maybe there can be a reset. And Kerry himself after the coup had a famous statement where he said that Sisi, um, the current dictator who was the one who staged the coup, was quote unquote, restoring democracy. And, you know, that was quite the thing to say after after a coup.
0: So it occurs to me as we talk about this, you know, in the past eight years, I think that Americans have gotten worse at accepting election outcomes. I think that's safe to say. Obviously, in 2020, you have huge swaths of the Republican Party believing that uh, the, the election was stolen on very, very little evidence. And you have January 6th and all that. On the other side, you also you also twenty sixteen. There's some polls in the aftermath of the election showing some like two thirds of Democrats believing that Russians, you know, tampered with the machines and so forth. You have you know Stacey Abrams not conceding the election in Georgia immediately because of you know so called voter suppression and and so forth. The temperature with this stuff is, is rising on both sides, and people are less and that's in a country with. You know the longest running democracy on earth, a country where our founding myth and our national story is as tied to democracy as it is to to any any other concept you can name. Maybe only freedom is we we more associate with america than than democracy. and it, you know it's it's even difficult for us it's this is difficult for us, and we have the easiest psychological hand to play in terms of sort of accepting election results that we don't like, and and we even struggle with it. How difficult is it going to be to get a nation with, I guess, less of a national, a shorter history, a nation that is not necessarily hundreds of years old, but where the borders may have been drawn, you know, in the past hundred years, that hasn't been a democracy the whole time, or even most most of the time, to inculcate this very counterintuitive notion of accepting election results that you don't like?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is a challenge. And I think that our own experience recently as Americans has, you know, clarified matters in that regard, like democracy becomes more difficult when you feel like so much is at stake. So the question for me is always, how do we find ways to lower the stakes? So one thing I was an advocate of during the Arab Spring was to avoid presidential systems. That presidential systems tend to concentrate power, uh they tend to lead to a more centralized ethos of politics and it also discourages coalition building because you can have, you know, one president from one party who then doesn't necessarily need to make common cause with other parties and form a government. So to the extent possible, you want to create and encourage institutions that diffuse and distribute power. And I think that any culture and society can do that through good institutional design. Now, um, that's one thing, but even winner takes all elections are not good in polarized societies. So part of the issue in America is that in one particular district, if one party wins 50% of the vote, they have. They're the ones who control the entire, I mean, that's they have control of that congressional seat. And then the loser gets nothing, even if the losing party won 49%. So, this is precisely why when people talk about winner takes all politics, part of what they're referring to is the fact that we have single member districts in America. And again, there were some Arab countries during the Arab Spring that adopted some of these winner take all um, districting. And so you can, these are just like technocratic things. I don't mean to say it's a solution, but that's one way of thinking about it, is that you have these different mechanisms, and whatever you can do to um move away from a winner-takes all approach is good. And I think honestly, if we could move away from a winner-takes all approach in our own single member districts in America, that would be preferable. Of course, that's not likely to happen. But yes, yeah, so that's one part of it. That said, I would say that. The American experience tells us that our system has been resilient. So I'm not someone who is very negative on the last few years. Our system worked, even though you have a growing number of Americans who talk a big game and talk shit about not respecting democratic outcomes. And as you said, a majority of Republicans have said time and time again to pollsters that they believe in the big lie that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. I think we have to be careful about taking them at their word. And I know that, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, do we take Trump literally and seriously and all that stuff? But in this particular case, if a majority of Republicans really felt strongly about this, they would have presumably been in the streets causing a lot of havoc. Because what could be worse than the end of the American experiment as we know it? Because if, in fact, the election was stolen, through fraud or whatever from Trump in 2020, that would mark the end. There would be nothing more serious that you can imagine. But the fact that we didn't actually see mass mobilization uh, or mass protests, we just had basically people telling pollsters that they want to, that they basically want to own the libs. So in some ways, the big lie became a way to signal your distrust of elite institutions or to basically troll the pollster who's talking to you. There's been some, you know, some interesting work by Musa El Garbi on this, the Columbia sociologist and also Heterodox Academy fellow who's written about not taking those polls at face value because what they're actually about is Republican voters signaling Anti-establishment sentiment because if they really thought the election was stolen, they would do something about it and thank the Lord that they didn't, right? So and I think also if we look at the midterms, we had all this concern about election deniers winning. Even though a lot of Republicans, you know, sympathize with those ideas, they didn't vote for those candidates. That wasn't what they were prioritizing. That that wasn't what was animating them. So all of this to me suggests that. The democratic idea is more resilient than we give it credit for. It can withstand a lot of shocks, even if you have people who say, "Oh my God, if the other party wins, um, it's the end of the world," and I'm not going to respect the outcome. That said, I, you know we have to critique our own side, and that's why when Trump won in 2016, and I saw my fellow left of center, you know, friends and you know people I knew basically not treating Trump. As a legitimate president, or saying that um, basically it was Russian misinformation that got him into power. And then Russiagate, I think, was a two years long effort to delegitimize a legitimately elected president. I became very critical of that in part because of my experiences in the Middle East, because I saw what happened when the Muslim Brotherhood won in Egypt, and I saw how secular elites in Egypt talked about the Brotherhood, this kind of disdain for the unwashed masses, that if only the masses could have the right education, then they would vote the right way. And then I come back to the US in 2014, and in 2015, I start to see liberals using some of this same language that we have to educate the deplorables. And I'm like, I've seen this before. So I think there is quite a bit we can learn by looking at how other societies have dealt with these situations for better for better or worse. But I think you're right to say that it is a universal problem, which is why I put so much of an emphasis on it in my book and my work more broadly, because it is the fundamental political question of our time, is what do we do when democracy produces bad outcomes? And we got to
0: answer it. We got to have an answer. So one of the points you make in your book is that promoting democracy in Arab nations is directly at odds with the short-term, medium-term, maybe even long-term interests of Israel. And therefore, by extension, possibly against American interests in the region. Can you spell out why that is?
1: Yeah, yeah. So if democracy is about being responsive to the, to the electorate, then it's worth asking what does the what do Arab electorates actually think? And I would say generally Arabs are complicated just like everyone else is and have a wide variety of contradictory preferences, but where they do tend to be um let's say somewhat more consistent for better or worse is that they, they don't love Israel. Um let's say that yeah, they're anti-Israel. And it's not just Islamists that are anti-Israel, but this is just more a popular sentiment. Leftist parties, nationalist parties, even liberal parties tend to be um, anti-Israel to one degree or another. They might frame it in different ways. But so I think that, but that's what, if democracy is about reflecting the general will in some way, then if large numbers of Arabs don't like Israel and don't want to have a very close relationship to Israel, then naturally democracy will need to reflect that sentiment. So when I say that democracy is the right to make the wrong choice, it applies to a lot of different topics, not just like whether you're going to support gender equality or minority rights or how you feel about blasphemy laws or restricting alcohol consumption. It can also relate to things that Americans take. You know, We assume that, oh, you know, if these countries move towards uh, democracy, then they'll stop focusing on Israel and their focus on their own internal debates and dynamics, perhaps, but only up into a point, because people have strong views on foreign policy. And the idea that they're not going to express that or not they're going to stop caring about those issues, I think, is a little bit unrealistic. So that means that over time, if there was democracy in the rest of the Middle East and Israel wasn't the only uh, the only Middle Eastern democracy, depending on how you want to consider Turkey in that, or Iraq and Lebanon, which are partial democracies, although obviously conflict-ridden. So, you know, is that's why Israel supports autocratic regimes in the rest of the region. And I think it's worth being straight up about that fact. I understand why because they're acting according to a very narrow conception of their interest. And they think that having
0: having autocrats- Is it narrow though, or is it just realistic? I mean, like holding out the- It's realistic, but also short-sighted. Because in the end, in the
1: end, can you really have peace with Arab dictators and you totally cut out the population? You say, forget about the people. We're just going to make- we're going to cooperate with Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, or the Emiratis, we're going to sign the Abrahamic Accords with the UAE. That's fine, fine, but it has a limit because can you have a permanent peace if you don't bring the people in? If the governed are not part of that process, then you're always at risk that if there is a democratic opening in a country, that these anti-Israel sentiments will come out, and then you're back to square one of how you deal with that. Um, so I think that in the long term, because I think that authoritarian regimes are inherently unstable, they're impermanent. So it's always, I think, a worthy a worthy thing to try to get ahead of the curve and try to think about the long term. So if you take my premise that authoritarian regimes can't last forever, and maybe some people would take issue with that premise, but that's a bit of a more philosophical conversation about why why authoritarian regimes can't survive in the long run. But if you take that premise, it means that Israel making common cause with Arab dictators is not a long-term solution to the problem, right? But I think that one way that we can protect against excesses, so let's say that Islamist parties come to power, they're probably not going to cancel peace treaties because that's hard to do because you're embedded in an international environment. And these new governments that are elected, however anti-Israel they'll be, they'll still need international aid. They'll still need U.S. military equipment. They're still embedded in these relationships. So they're not going to cancel the peace treaty with Israel because if they did, then the U.S. would retaliate and they can't really afford that when they want to get their economy back on track. So I think there are constraints. It is true that a lot of Arabs, if you ask them in their heart of hearts, like, what would you want to happen to Israel? I'm not going to pretend otherwise. A lot of them would say, well, we'd prefer that Israel didn't exist. But what people say rhetorically, what their ideal is, is very different than what they're
0: willing to live with in the real world. Right, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting question because to me, it just does seem like if you're an Israeli, at some level, you can't afford to think long term. I think like the nature of being under violent conflict and violent threat twenty four seven is that you end up having to think short term, like getting to tomorrow and getting to next week becomes a permanent state of mind, which is a shame. But I I think it's probably just an inevitable consequence of, you know, given Israeli history, you know, being besieged on all sides by threatening countries that have invaded many times and so forth. So I do I do think it probably just is in their short term interest to support the quote, you know, benign dictatorships, not benign to the people under the thumb of dictators, but benign from Israel's perspective. Even if in the long run that may not be in the long run it might not be great for Israel, but they can't really afford to think about the long run.
1: Yeah, I agree. And that's why I don't actually call on Israelis to change their approach. I call on Americans to change their approach. I don't think that American interests and Israeli interests are synonymous or should be considered synonymous. So we diverge on that, and that's okay. We don't always agree with our allies on everything. But it, you know, it's also worth asking, why is there so much anti-Israel sentiment in the Arab world in the first place? You know, is part of it classical anti-Semitism? Sure, but it it's not classical anti-Semitism in the European sense, because there isn't actually a long history of anti-Jewish sentiment until really the 20th century, where this starts to come out more in Arab societies, and it has to do with geopolitics. It has to do with a specific political conflict vis-a-vis Israel. And that is something that can actually be improved and addressed over time. So if there was a peace with the Palestinians and if there was a two-state solution, would some people still hate Israel in the Middle East? Yes, I'm not going to pretend that there's going to be some panacea, but would there be a shift away from this preoccupation with Israel's unique badness? Yes, I do think that some of the sentiment would lessen in intensity because Egyptians or Jordanians would say, well, look, the Palestinians themselves signed a peace deal with the Israelis. Like, Is it really our place to be more Palestinian than the Palestinians themselves? So I think it's just worth remembering that there is an Israeli-Palestinian conflict that is animating at least a good portion of the anger towards Israel. And I'm someone, I'm very critical of the Israeli occupation as well. And I think it's a reasonable thing for reasonable people to be angry about it. Where I do draw the line, though, is on you know i don't support bds boycott divestment sanctions because i don't think that someone who's an israeli citizen should pay the price for their government's policies just because of where they were born i mean if israel is the only country you know for people to say that the entire country of israel should be boycotted and that there should be a one state solution where israel is no longer a jewish state i don't support that and that's a little bit of a different conversation but you know, I think it's totally fair for Americans to take a stronger position on the occupation. And that's where there might be some divergence with our Israeli, you know, friends, partners, allies. Um, So one thing I suggest in the book is that if we did have a full-throated democracy promotion policy in the Middle East, we would also have to give Israel ironclad security guarantees to basically tell them that, look, there's going to be some anti-Israel parties that come to power, but don't worry we are 100% committed to your security. And Israel does have a qualitative military edge. They can destroy any Arab country pretty quickly. It's not even close in terms of military capacity. And Israel, of course, is a nuclear-armed state. So I think I think that in reality, there are ways that to guarantee Israel's safety and security. But you're right. There's no way of getting around the fact that Israelis themselves, many of them, if not most of them, would not like the pro-democracy a policy that I'm proposing here.
0: So I'm comparing in my mind the status quo of Israel occupying the West Bank, the Palestinians there who live at the mercy of a regime that they can't change, which is to say, yes, they have local elected officials, but the IDF can go anywhere and they can come into your home, they can do anything, right? They, they are not living from their perspective or, or anyone's in a free state or in a condition of that a Western person would recognize as freedom, right? And we talk about how they got there, but the, you know, I'm comparing that unhappy status quo with a version where Israel pulls out like they did in Gaza. And quite likely what would rush in to fill that void would be violent terrorist party that began digging tunnels under the border, just like they do under Gaza and Lebanon, um, and Hezbollah in the case of Le- Lebanon, and rocket attacking, uh, you know, Israeli villages and, and so forth. With as you say, like an, an American security guarantee, so that there really is no fundamental threat. Like Israel's not going to lose this war, but it's going to be in a situation where, well, frankly, it's going to be in a situation where you know rockets are coming into villages people are having to hide in bomb shelters, most of whom will not die. Life will go on for those people as tough as it is. And then, you know, the joint US or IDF forces will be forced to retaliate against, you know, whatever forces come into that void, whether it's Iran or Hezbollah or Hamas or something, no doubt killing lots of Arab, Palestinian civilians, like we have in Gaza. That that seems like a, a fairly... Not not to mention whatever chaos is caused by you know the settlers like moving back into uh, mainland Israel, if that were to happen, that so I'm comparing that to the status quo, and I'm not really sure which one is worse for the world, worse for the region. Um, that that seems like not such an obvious choice to me. How do you look at those two options?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, well, first of all, the status quo isn't particularly stable or peaceful because every couple of years there is an outbreak of violence in Gaza, as recently as as last year, um, as listeners might recall, and the toll of destruction and death, particularly on the Arab side, as you mentioned, like that's that tends to be what happens—that a disproportionate number of, of Arabs are are killed through Israeli incursions into Palestinian territory. But So that's that's one thing. But I would also say that I don't support unilateral disengagement. So part of the issue with what happened in Gaza is that there wasn't a peace settlement. The Israeli forces just left. And then obviously there's a vacuum. And when there's a vacuum, there's a risk that extremist groups will fill that vacuum. So to the extent that Israel is serious about removing itself from the west bank it should be part of a final status deal that they move towards otherwise it's another one of these unilateral disengagements that runs the risk of giving more ground to whatever extremist group you have in mind whether it's Hamas or even groups that are more extreme than Hamas so that's that's what i'd say about that it's not a foregone conclusion that whoever fill, whoever is the political force that dominates in the West Bank is going to be extremist, and that's why there should be a democratic process in the West Bank. Part of the tragedy of of Palestine is that there's basically a benign dictator who's been who's been Mohammed Abbas, who's been in power for such a long time, and he he hasn't had to face elections. Elections keep on being postponed, so there's no real political process institutions are decaying, and people are losing faith in the Palestinian authority. So all these trends suggest to me that instability will come, and the status quo is the status quo, and maybe people are okay with that, but it's not a very appealing status quo. Um, But yeah, look, I think that um, Israel, so I am sympathetic to what you know Israeli interlocutors would say, which is, "Look, Shadi, everything you're saying about democracy is nice and America living up to its values, but we're not willing to put our security at risk because if you're coming at it from a particular Israeli perspective, security is paramount at least for for many Israelis, and understandably so based on their history, but it's unclear to me why you know two hundred million Arabs should pay the price." for the Israeli preoccupation with security at any cost. Life and politics are about trade-offs. So Israelis might want their security to be paramount, but I don't love the idea that therefore Arabs are then consigned to living under benign, somewhat pro-Israel dictatorships for the rest of their lives. I mean, that's not a moral trade-off that I'm comfortable with. I don't think any American should be comfortable with that moral trade-off. Now, Israelis have a different moral calculus, and that's fine for them to have. But again, we can diverge on that.
0: I think there's a... So it's one thing to condemn a status quo that is horrible. But in the real world, we're only ever choosing amongst actual options. We're never actually comparing the status quo to a utopia you know so compared to a, an ideal situation the occupation of the west bank is just pure evil but compared to the actual alternatives i think you know you, you and i both agree it's better than a unilateral withdrawal and then you know the and then i guess we could the, the only other option is obviously annexation is not possible or desirable um then what is the other option here like what is the option that Israel by its, you know, stubborn insistence on its own security leaving on the table.
1: Yeah, and for precisely the way that you've laid it out, I'm I've sort of given up on the hope for you know, a resolution to the conflict. And so part of what I tend to argue is that we as Americans shouldn't even waste time with this illusion of a peace process that leads to nowhere and where neither side is really interested or engaged. And certainly the more powerful side isn't interested or engaged in this case, um, successive Israeli government. So, but then, so until we're serious about putting pressure on Israel and, you know, my position is that Israel is and will continue being an ally, but sometimes we have to put pressure on our allies. if. We think they're doing something destructive. So at some point, there sh- I believe sh- there should be pressure on the Israeli government to soften its stance on the Palestinians to start to move in a more constructive direction. I don't think the U.S. has been willing to use its leverage in that regard, even under the most supposedly pro-Palestinian um, administration, the Obama administration. Obama used nice rhetoric about respecting Palestinians and... Understanding their grievances, but when push came to shove, he indulged Netanyahu. He would complain about Netanyahu all the time, but not do anything about his complaints. I almost want the reverse. I mean, I'd rather. I don't need pro-Palestinian rhetoric, but if you actually want to incentivize the Israelis to make concessions to the Palestinians, you have to be willing to um, to actually institute some tough love. But until we're willing to do that, I'm more in favor of just saying, forget this bullshit about the peace process. Let's table that and we can acknowledge that it's not going in any good direction for the foreseeable future. What we can focus on is put is trying to use the leverage we have with Arab dictators who are dependent on us for their security – to push them to open up their political systems, not overnight. And I don't believe that democracy is possible or desirable overnight. But if we're giving these governments billions of dollars or providing them billions of dollars of advanced weapon systems, I think it's reasonable to ask something in return to say, look, you Saudis, you want, uh, you know, you want um, basically – Uh, to be able to have these advanced militaries um, and you want us to continue providing spare parts and maintenance so you can actually run your jets and tanks. Let's be clear. If we wanted to ground the Saudi Air Force, we could do so in weeks because without spare parts and maintenance, you can't actually run your military. So my, my view is that that leverage should finally be used and we've been reticent to use it for a very long time. And that's a better way to focus our attention and our efforts in the Middle East than pretending that there can be some resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict when we're not willing to put pressure on the Israelis.
0: So pivoting slightly, in the past six to eight years, the attitude of isolationism has become a lot more popular in America. This is the idea that when we intervene in foreign policy of other countries, we always end up blundering um, or almost always. our intentions are usually not even in the right place. We have ulterior motives. We have a military industrial complex. And besides, you know, what right do we have to act like the world's police or to apply, Lots of pressure to countries to bend in ways that we want according to our values. Who are we to do that? This has become popular on, on the right now as well. It was it was always somewhat popular on the left in the 2000s during the war in Iraq. What is your response to the attitude of isolationism? To that
1: question, who are we to do that? I have a very simple answer. We're America. So, I mean, like, and I can unpack that, but, you know, at some basic level... As an American, I believe in America. I think we are morally and politically superior to countries like China and Russia, not because of anything inherently bad or wrong about the Chinese people or Russian people, but because these are dictatorships. I don't think there can be any moral equivalency between dictatorships and democracies And, you know, there's something distressing to me about the fact that Americans are just so in this perpetual mode of self-doubt, especially American elites, that they're like, oh, you know, not that you're saying this, but like, who are we to promote our values abroad? We're so, we're so flawed. We're not even a real democracy. Look at our founding and which I, I find all that argumentation to be really silly. We are still a democracy, however flawed we might be, and we can acknowledge our flaws while still promoting the values that we hold dear abroad. My view is that we shouldn't engage in projects of cultural transformation. This is where the distinction between democracy and liberalism becomes important. I don't think it is our role to tell people to be classical liberals. First of all, it's very difficult to do that. How do you force someone to be liberal or coerce them to be liberal? Because a liberalism not freely chosen is sort of self-negating. but I do think that we can promote mechanisms for regulating conflict, and which goes back to this minimalistic conception of democracy. And that's what democracy, I think, um, allows societies to do. Because otherwise, it's rule of force. It's rule of the dictator. Whoever has the most power crushes their opponents. And I'd like to think that Americans should oppose that and to try to encourage other societies to not resolve their uh, divides in that coercive manner. So uh, maybe what I'm saying, and I'm comfortable saying this is that, you know, we are exceptional. We are the only, well, first of all, we are the only superpower in the world today. So on the very basic calculus of power, no one else has the power that we have. But what also makes us unique is that this unprecedented power is tied to a somewhat unique mission. It is fairly rare for nation states to have, even if it's not always lived up to in practice, to have a rhetorical mission of promoting democracy abroad. Um, Even our, our European counterparts don't really have that so much. And are perfectly fine, you know, um, you know, just having a foreign policy focused on narrow national security interests and sort of coordinating off values and ideals for the most part. So, yeah, we are different and we are better. And do we believe in these things or not? Do we believe it's better for other, for other societies, for people to actually be able to choose their own leaders? I want to to encourage that wherever we can. And if we have the power to do so, I think there's a moral obligation to do so, not by militarily invading other countries. So this is where I make a very clear distinction between Iraq and Afghanistan. Those were military invasions that were not primarily about democracy. And in the case of Iraq, democracy was only emphasized as a rationale after we realized or you know, that there weren't weapons of mass destruction. So I want to be careful about this kind of, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater that people, I you know, I was against Iraq war and part of my own political evolution is very much, you know, in the shadow of 9-11 and being part of the anti-Iraq, the anti-war movement vis-a-vis Iraq. But I think it's very much possible to say that democracy promotion, as long as you're not doing it literally at the barrel of a gun, that's a different sort of thing. So what I'm talking about in the case of Egypt is we already give them $1.3 billion of military aid a year. So who are we to put pressure on them? Well, we are the country that gives them $1.3 billion of military aid. So that gives us, I think, some say as to how we want to use that leverage. If they don't want our military support, they can, I mean, theoretically, they could go to China and Russia. But as we know, the Russian military is a bit of a joke. And um, China doesn't really do that yet in the Middle East. They can't completely substitute America's role in terms of providing an entire security umbrella for these countries, thank God. So if they want security, we're the only option. But then let's use that leverage in accord with our values and ideals. But yes, I am basically saying that America is better and we shouldn't, um, whether you're on the left or the right, why shouldn't we think that
0: we're better? So another question here is about benign dictatorship. We have a country like Singapore, which by most accounts is quite a nice place to live and a lovely place to visit uh, as long as you don't break any laws. Although that could that could be said of most places, um, I mean that's sort of the catch, but yeah, yeah, and dictatorship also played a role in taking it from a third world country into one of the top ten richest you know nation nations on earth, and I guess you know another argument people used to make, not so much anymore, was that a country like China was able to do so well. On its COVID policy, because it was a dictatorship and not a democracy that has to negotiate between all of these competing, you know, parties and competing voices. Um, obviously, that argument I think is is no longer made, given the mass protests breaking out in Beijing and Shanghai and all over the country about their, you know, insane draconian lockdown policies that are continuing. But you know, as of a year ago, many people would still have made that argument. What do you make of the notion of a a benign dictatorship?
1: Yeah, well, you're right about Singapore. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, People bring up Singapore a lot when it comes to examples of benevolent dictatorship. Part of the reason is because there's very few others. So, you know, I don't want to take the easy way out and say that Singapore is the exception that proves the rule. But in some ways, I guess it is. But also keep in mind, I mean, Singapore is a city state. It only has about, you know, five and a half million people, if I recall. So it's very hard to take the Singapore model and replicate it elsewhere unless you have a very small country. How do you replicate that in a country of hundreds of millions, let's say? That becomes a little bit less clear. And I remember I I posed this question on Twitter sometime last month where I was, you know, can you come up with anyone besides Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore? I guess... A couple people brought up Paul Kagame in Rwanda, Ataturk in Turkey. Those are examples of borderline cases with major, major asterisks for a number of reasons I don't want to get into right now. But even if you take those two other cases, that's only three cases in like the hundreds of examples we have of governments over the past century. So I think that tells us something important about how difficult it is to actually do Benevolent dictatorship, well, I get that it's nice in theory. It's sort of like this philosophical fantasy. If only we could get away with the pesky aspects of give and take, of contentious politics, if only we didn't have to worry about red tape and bureaucracies and a Congress that provides a a check and balance and all that. So it does, I think, satisfy a fantasy that especially American technocratic elites have especially people who don't like the masses. So they're like, oh, you know, a lot of the misinformation discourse that's popular in America now, I think has this kind of technocratic, techno-authoritarian undertone. It's like, if only people had the right education, we could guide them to their correct interests. So I think that we have to be very careful about the underlying sentiments that animate this way of looking at the world What animates it is a disdain for your fellow citizens. You don't trust them to make decisions or to even have the right to make decisions. I'm glad you brought up the fact that China, and thank God China has made my job easier because people could actually, like they used to be able, you know, I had my answers then, but now it's easy. I don't even have to make the argument anymore because we see in a very profound way the illusion of technocracy. That you have, oh, you know, here's the Chinese regime. They'll follow the science and they can just make instant hospitals in six days or whatever else it might be. And then we see now if you give the thing about autocracies, they can seem effective in the short run, but you give them some time. And then the weaknesses, you know, as I alluded to earlier, start to become more apparent because if you only have one dominant leader or one dominant party where you're concentrating power, the dictatorship is only as good as the leaders. And because human beings are mere mortals, even someone who's very smart and qualified, at some point they'll start making mistakes. It's very hard to imagine a situation where even like the smartest person doesn't start messing things up, especially if he has yes people around him all the time, right? So at some point the dictator will start fucking up and then the question is, what are the means to undo the damage? The problem now in China with zero COVID is that there is no institutional mechanism to stop zero COVID. If they had elections and people were angry, and it seems like growing number of Chinese uh, Chinese citizens are angry, They would simply vote differently or they would criticize their local government officials without fear of persecution or they would write an article or go to a protest without actually being arrested. Um, So that is what makes democracy, you know, it seems chaotic and messy in the short term, but over time that resilience starts to show itself because no matter how bad our government gets in America, we always have a way to self-correct. If we're angry enough, we can you know protest our local school board there's so many applications of this we always have an avenue for dissent so when people we so we never have to give up hope there's always
0: a process of improvement potentially well on that note your book is called the problem of democracy right yep slightly misleading though because it's really a ringing defense of democracy yes That's right. In some ways, I'm
1: trying to resolve the problem of democracy um, and pointing people people on a path where they can think about their own concerns and the tensions and contradictions that they see in the democratic idea, but to hopefully get past them and transcend them. And that democracy is good, not just in spite of its faults, but also because of its faults.
0: Beautiful. All right. So before I let you go, can you tell my listeners where to follow you, your uh, your Twitter handle, your podcast, website, et cetera?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. You can find me on Twitter where I'm reasonably active at Shadi Hamid. So first name and last name. And um I co-host a podcast with my with my friend Demir. It's called Wisdom of Crowds, which you can find on any podcast platform of your choice. And then I write regularly for The Atlantic, and you can find my articles for The Atlantic on my uh, Atlantic author page. I actually have a piece coming out soon, uh, which you should stay tuned for. Um, but yeah, feel free to say hello.
0: All right, Shadi, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. If you appreciate the work I do, you can support me by subscribing directly to my website, colemanhughes.org, and sharing this episode with friends and family. As always, thank you for your support.